Fuck Bloomberg. Really, seriously, folks. Yes, I know, this is Rumble. It's my podcast, I'm Michael Moore. In April of 1999, I received a phone call one day. I picked it up, and on the other end of the line was a man by the name of Mike Bloomberg. He was calling me to ask me out on a date. Well, not a date date, like the way we normally use the word, but he was inviting me to be his dinner guest uh, at the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner. And the press invite, for lack of a better word, celebrities to be their dinner dates. And so here was Bloomberg on the other end of the line with me. And this is 1999, so this is all before, you know, Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11 and my book, uh, Stupid White Man, and all the things that sort of um, brought me um, a wide mainstream um, success, I guess is the word. But I had, you know, made a um, couple of documentaries, and I had my TV show on NBC, uh, TV Nation, and then... um, I was just starting The Awful Truth on Bravo. So I had this cult following, I guess you could call it, but not, you know, not anything on the, again, on the level of Mary Tyler Moore or or Robert Rutford or something like that. But here was Bloomberg inviting me to to be his guest, to walk the red carpet with him into the Washington Hilton and sit there at the table with him that night. And uh, (laughs) I was like... Okay, <laughs> sure, thanks, I guess. I couldn't really process it properly at the moment, but um, sure enough, May 1st rolled around, and I, I'm i there, and we meet up at some reception beforehand, and I'm kind of excited to go to it, frankly. Um, at that point, I don't think I'd ever, I don't think I'd been in the room uh, with President Clinton at that point. So Bloomberg News, you know, it's a big news entity here in this country. Uh, and he was the founder and CEO of Bloomberg News. That's what he was doing. And this is before he's mayor of New York. And there were various executives, I believe, from Bloomberg News at these tables. But also, I wasn't his only date. He had two-timed me. He invited somebody else. I get to the table and they're I'm sitting next to him, and on the other side of him is his other date, a man by the name of Charlie Rose. (laughs) And you all know who Charlie Rose is. Of course, if you're listening in another country, you may not know, but uh, a couple of years ago, when Harvey Weinstein kicked off the the Me Too movement, and uh, uh, people who had worked on the Charlie Rose show, women, had come forward, and so that was the end of uh, Charlie Rose. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm just trying to get through the dinner at some point. But, you know, whenever the receipt came due, it wasn't paid off. I supported his opponent, Mark Green, who was used to work in Ralph Nader's office back when I worked in it, and back in the 1980s, a long time ago. So I supported Mark, and, uh, and Bloomberg, Bloomberg uh, won. Is this the end? Is this because we allowed Trump to happen? Is this our punishment now that the idea of a democracy of by and for the people, the people, not the billionaires, the people? That's just we're just going to forget that now because we we let Trump happen. Oh, and the way we're going to get rid of Trump is we're going to bring in Bloomberg, the ninth richest man in the world. But you know, what I want to talk to you about today, this is Rumble with Michael Moore, and um, I really need to talk to you today because this has gone far enough. I can't take any more of this onslaught that goes by the name of Michael Bloomberg. We're not really going to let this happen, are we? I don't know how much all of you know about Bloomberg. I guess I've had the the good blessing of being able to split my time between my home in Michigan 
and um, where I work in New York City. And so I have an apartment in Michigan and I have an apartment in New York City. And so I have lived in New York on and off, in and out during the Bloomberg era. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is truly, truly, oh, see, I'm going, I'm censoring myself. I'm just going through everything I really think and feel about this man in my head. And I'm thinking, why don't you just say it at your podcast? Who cares? I mean, I mean, obviously I care, but I care to tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's why you're listening to me, I think. One of the reasons, at least, that, you know, I'm not going to pull my punches. I'm not going to put this through some filter. And I'm just going to tell it like it is. Michael Bloomberg is a terrorist. He terrorized the black and brown people of New York City for 12 years. I saw it happening. I know people he terrorized. They called it stop and frisk. And of course he said he inherited, he inherited the program from Rudy Giuliani. And yes, it was Giuliani's, you know, genius idea, I guess, to just randomly stop, not pull over. You know, most New Yorkers, I don't think, I don't, I'm guessing most New Yorkers don't own a car. So it's not like out there in the rest of the country where black people are constantly being pulled over by the police. This is just walking down the sidewalk and making it legal to allow the police to grab young men, mostly, African-Americans, mostly, but also Latinos, and um, in Bloomberg's words, throw them against the wall. <laughs> Five million black and brown, mostly men, were grabbed by the police, held, thrown, thrown down, zip ties put around their wrists. And in those frightening minutes, hours, however long they were being held, not knowing what was going to happen to them, wondering what the hell did, did I do to deserve this? Well, of course, they knew what they did. They were born with skin that wasn't white. So a policy that is designed specifically based on race, not that, oh, you know, there's a description of somebody who just robbed the bodega. Uh, we're looking for that person. No, it's just there. The cops just see them. They're young. They're black. Let's go fuck them up. In these 12 years, 5 million, 5 million black and brown men stopped by Bloomberg's police force. You have to understand, though, how Bloomberg thinks because he loves the idea of a police state. I saw it very up close and personal a number of times. The Republicans decided to have their national convention for to pick the president in 04, to pick the presidential candidate here in, in New York City in Madison Square Garden. And so a bunch of us, you know, we all organized a lot of protests planned for that week. Um, but there were police informants uh, who were placed inside all the different organizations to write down the names and take down the information of the people who were at the meetings and the people who seemed to be the main organizers. And so I think this was maybe the day, day or two before the convention, uh, we decided to have a march. It was down either 7th or 8th Avenue, you know, toward uh, Madison Square Garden. And I remember they asked me to stand in the front row, one of the people holding the banner, and I stood next to Jesse Jackson, and I can't remember. There were, you know, people like us, basically, holding this banner. We're going down the street, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I can see police just coming out of nowhere. And a lot of them did not have police uniforms on. They were just, you know, in T-shirts and shorts. The person I was with said, um, hey, let's get the hell out of here. Uh, this is going to go bad in about 30 seconds. And other people were seeing that too and started to bolt. And so we bolted. And 
you know, I know from years of experience of keeping myself out of jails that uh, once we blended into the crowds under the sidewalk, uh, uh, not to look like we're moving in a suspicious manner or in a, you know, jittery runaway manner. And we just kind of slipped in like we were customers at a, I think it was a Sabaro's, but it was some sort of either, you know, pizza slice or sandwich shop. And we were no sooner were we in there looking out the window and then here come the, the police and um, they started arresting people. But as we learned later, they were first focused on arresting the organizers and the leaders of the anti-Republican march. And um, they rounded up literally a few thousand. They arrested a few thousand. You know, these are not violent. These are just people having a normal, peaceful demonstration. And uh, and they took them all to um, a warehouse on a pier, an abandoned pier in an abandoned warehouse, essentially, on the Hudson River, and put them in there for and kept them there during the entire convention for the next four or five days. They, they were held without charges, without a hearing in front of a judge, violating all of their, you know, uh, basic civil rights. And somehow I escaped that uh, just because I looked like I would be going to a Sabaro's. It was pretty awful for the people that were in there. Nobody could contact them if you had a friend or a relative or whatever. There was no way to um, have any kind of real uh, communication. Now, eventually, they sued the couple thousand, two to four thousand, I'm thinking, I'm trying to remember the number now, that were being held against their will. Uh, those days, they eventually uh, filed a civil suit in the years after that against the city, and the you know, settlement was reached. And I think $18 million judgment was rendered that the New York city had to pay the protesters uh, who were held there for the better part of that week against their will. That was Bloomberg's idea. He had no qualms about it. He believed that that was his, his, his armed force that worked for him in his little fiefdom called New York city. This wasn't the only time he did stuff like this, but it was, it was part and parcel of the whole stop and frisk Thing. And by the way, I just need to tell you that African-American friends of mine do not like that term stop and frisk because it's a lie. What it really was is that they were being hunted and they knew that anytime they went outside of their apartment or their home in New York City with their black skin, with their brown skin, they knew that, that they were being stalked by the NYPD and at any moment could be jumped simply because they were black or brown. Now, you have to understand, the number of uh, black and brown, you know, Bloomberg said they were 15 to 25 year olds in the city during that decade. I read this somewhere. It was like, there's maybe 200,000 black and brownie, 15 to 25 year old men. On the, on the, on the high end years, it was 500 to 600,000. You know, Bloomberg said, oh, I, I, I tamped it down after I inherited it. No, when he inherited it, the first year of Bloomberg's uh, term as mayor, there were 92,000 of these uh, so-called arrests, stop and frisk arrests. By his last year, they had gone up to five, 600, almost 700,000 of these arrests. 700,000 when there's only, the targeted racial group was about 200,000. So therefore, and, and again, you can ask anybody who was black or brown in New York City at that time, especially if they were uh, that age and if they were male, they were stopped two, three, four, five times in those years. And not just stopped, beaten up, thrown against the wall, cuffed, held, taken. You know, we're very good when it comes to Trump and the Republicans and attacking them and criticizing them. Kids in cages, we hate that, yeah tearing children away from their parents, abusing them, locking them up. Well, I'm sorry. This is the sort of liberal version of this. This is when we have people that say they're like us, people like Bloomberg, 
even though, remember, he was a Republican. He ran as a Republican. He was the Republican mayor of New York City. Even when he became an independent halfway through his term or his three terms, he was never a Democrat. But that's okay. I'm, I'm not a Democrat. I don't belong to the party. But that was his version. Take a 15-year-old's a kid. And when you snatch that kid who's done nothing wrong and all the research they did later on this whole stop and frisk racist program found that well over 90% of these kids had never intended. They were stopped not for any reason, not because they'd done anything wrong or they were suspected of committing a crime. It was the crime of being black and the crime of being brown and young. And Bloomberg didn't, not only didn't try to reduce the number of this, he increased it. He increased the number of police in the city. There used to be like 20,000 cops, then there were 30,000, then 40,000, then there's all these other kind of, with Homeland Security, New York's got its own Homeland Security force, its own anti-terrorist force. What is terrorism? When you grab somebody simply because of their skin color, you separate them from their parents, you cuff them, you take them away, you terrorize them, that's what it was. And talk to anybody who who was a young black or brown man between the years 2001 and 2013. Jeez. They grew up with a sense of terror, of always having to look around every which way. You know, you know you, if you live in a city and you go out at night, if you do like kind of, yeah, you want to be aware of your surroundings and you look around, you're looking around because you want to be safe. What do you want to be safe from? Well, you don't want to get mugged. You don't want to have some drunk person come at you or whatever. I mean, you know, the typical things, right? But if you were black or brown in New York City during the 12 years of Bloomberg, you always had to look around for fear that the police were supposed to be working for you because you pay the taxes that pay their salary. You have to fear the police. Where in the world do citizens have to fear the police? What kind of countries? Police states. Can you imagine growing up in those 12 years, you're 13, you're 14 years old, until you're in your mid-20s, having to have this sense that you're living in a police state. If you know anybody or you go online, I know there's places on the internet you can go and you can read these stories of the terror campaign against black and brown young men by Mayor Bloomberg for those 12 years. Let's, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the tape here, but let's play the tape of, of him describing the genius uh, of his, uh, his program, his stop and frisk uh, program. And now with this context that I've given you, just think about this. 95% of your murders and murderers and murder victims fit one MO. You can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the top. They are male minorities, 15 to 25. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of the people that get killed. So you've got to, if you want to spend the money for a lot of cops in the street, put those cops where the crime is, which means <laughs> in minority neighborhoods. So it's one of the unintended consequences is People say, oh my God, you are arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is uh, to throw them against the wall and frisk them. And then they start, they say, oh, I don't want that. I don't want to get caught. So they don't bring the gun. They still have a gun, but they leave it at home. See, this is all a lie. Everything he just talked about, about doing it because of the guns, wasn't anything to do with that. The so-called contraband or guns that they would find, it was something like less than 1%, some kind of crazy number that where they would actually find something on these kids, like a weapon. No, they targeted, as he said, the minority neighborhoods. You could just make a Xerox of them. Yes, you could just make a Xerox of them because, you know, they all look alike. All those black people, all those brown people. 
Yeah, just make a Xerox. You just need one Xerox. Because they all look like that. You know that look. That 15-year-old black kid. Yeah. Grab him. Throw him against the wall. Frisk him. Arrest him. Wow. And you know, (laughs) the irony of this, the so-called high-crime neighborhoods that he claimed to be doing this in, during the Bloomberg era, what was the highest crime neighborhood? Where did the greatest amount of crimes and the the quantitative and intensity uh, of these number of crimes, where did they take place in New York City? Bloomberg presided as mayor over the greatest crime spree in the history of this country, and it took place on a street called Wall, Wall Street. The crash of 08 that everybody in the country had to suffer through, those decisions were made right here in New York City on Wall Street or wherever the banks are, their headquarters here in New York or so many headquarters of corporate America in New York City. Where was the mayor then? Where were the police then? In the year or so leading up to the crash, there were many signs that there was some some tomfoolery going on with the with the decisions the banks were making. The hedge fund guys, all the people getting filthy rich. How many of them were stopped? How many of them were thrown against the wall? How many of them were handcuffed and taken away? No, we don't really consider those crimes, though, do we? Not, no, no, no. It's it's what those it's what those black and brown kids do. You know, we're never going to be the good country that we think we are if we don't stop behaving like this, and if if we even think about electing somebody who did what he did. And this other piece of tape was just revealed of um, how he decided to, he blames the crash of 08, not on the practices of the Wall Street firms, of the banks. He blames it on the poor people. They caused the crash because they were demanding for so many years that they be that they be given loans so they can get get a home for themselves. Now, of course, this is all made up. That's not what happened. Uh, I'm not going to go into the whole Recovery Act that started in the '70s to try to make it so that there could be affordable housing for people. Um, he just friggin' made this up and used it, knowing that white people who would hear this. And yes, I'm talking to all you white people who've been kind of excited about the fact that Bloomberg's running and that's how we'll beat Trump. That's because we got to beat Trump. We got to beat Trump. Even if we have to run Bloomberg, just let's play, let's play this. I hope this, uh, you can hear this. Okay. This is Bloomberg explaining, um, how it, the redlining caused this. You've made some reference to the elements that led to where we are today. Could, could you go a little bit deeper and tell us from your perspective, how did we get here? What are the root causes of the well, crisis? That you can into? go back. I, w- I would say it probably all started back uh, when there was a lot of pressure on banks to make loans to everyone. Everyone. Um, redlining, if you remember, was the term where banks took hold neighborhoods and said, uh, people in these neighborhoods are poor. They're not going to be able to pay off their mortgages. Tell them your salesmen don't go into those areas. And then Congress got involved as local elected officials as well and said, oh, that's not fair. These people should be able to get credit. And once you started pushing in that direction, banks started making more and more loans where the credit of the person buying the house wasn't as good as you would like. Now, it's not so bad when the market for houses keeps going up because the nice thing about making a mortgage loan is it's very secure. After all, if the, if the borrower defaults, you simply sell the house and you have something that's worth more than the value of the mortgage. And that assumes that real estate prices never go down and we just discovered that they could. Yes, it was all those people, these people, these people caused the banking crash. 
the poor people that Congress just got all nervous, you know, because they're voters. These poor people, they can vote. Damn it. You know, we better make sure they can get a loan. It's not what happened. If you don't know what happened, you know, go read about it or I'll do a show, an episode on it here. And But he's like, he's got this twisted thing about these people. These people that he could Xerox their face and you'd know the look on that face because of the color of its skin. And these same people with that same skin disease, black and brown, they pulled our whole banking system down because they wanted to own a home. These people. And then the people, a couple years after the OA crash, decided to rise up. And thus was born Occupy Wall Street. And the people in New York, the occupiers, occupied a park near Wall Street, created a little tent city. Bloomberg didn't know what to do. At first he told the police, you know, to hold off a little bit here. Some of them couldn't, couldn't, you know, do that. So one protest, they pepper sprayed a young girl right in her eyes. Awful. You remember if you ever saw it, you can look it up if you haven't seen it. And Bloomberg, it was a big outcry. Bloomberg had to back down. But not before on the Brooklyn Bridge, there was a protest and Geez, the police that night, oh, they arrested like 800 people. He loved, he loved the mass arrest. Just like all totalitarian rulers do. They love the mass arrest. Let the police have the power to just arrest as many people as possible. And if we don't have enough jails for them, we'll just grab a warehouse on the pier, throw them in there. They can just go pee in the corner. Fuck them. This guy loves the police state. And he loves blaming the victim. He loves blaming the people that don't have his skin color. And when he's not doing that, um, he's busy harassing women. This guy has, there's over, I think, 40 lawsuits that is, it, I think there's around 60 women who have, over the years, filed various sexual harassment claims and suits and abuse uh, complaints against him and his company. Man, you know, I'm sure it was probably not just him because, you know, him and he's the head of the company, but he creates a culture where it's okay to treat people that way. Just like what I sort of think I saw when I was a guest there on Charlie Rose. Did I see? No, that wasn't. No, that's not. No, it's come over on TV here. It's not Charlie Rose. No, it's PBS. Christ, come on. And of course, I'm. I'm there on Charlie Rose recording the show where he recorded the show every day at Bloomberg News Studios. <laughs> 40? 40? Wow. I don't think Harvey has 40. Why are we even talking about Bloomberg? Why is he even, why is he even being considered by anybody? Yes, I know it does because the Complaints in the lawsuits are filed doesn't mean he was necessarily or his employee, his executives guilty of anything and blah, 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 blah. So we've got the racism covered. We've got the misogyny covered. We've got the authoritarian rule that he loves with his police force arresting uh, people who've done nothing wrong. But what was he doing? Inviting the Republicans into New York City to hold their convention, giving them all... The, you know, the red carpet treatment at Madison Square Garden. And then there he is. There he is. The guy who's wanting the Democratic nomination for president of the United States this year. Just 16 years ago. Standing in Madison Square Garden. Making uh, one of the, you know, big speeches. Supporting the nomination for a second term of George W. Bush. Can, do we have the, the, the uh, audio of that? Listen to this. This is Bloomberg at the Republican National Convention, 2004. He's mayor of New York. He's a Republican. Um, he has supported the invasion of Iraq, which had occurred the year before. Big supporter of it. Still supports it to this day. Well, he says, he, I mean, little, just a few weeks ago, in 2020, 
said that he has no regrets and uh, he doesn't apologize for anything. And um, let's play this. This is Bloomberg at the Republican convention, 2004. I want to thank President Bush for supporting New York City in changing the Homeland Security funding formula and for leading the global war on terrorism. The President deserves our support. We are here to support him. And I am here to support him. Seriously, is anybody listening to this even thinking about voting for this individual uh, to be the Democratic nominee? He's a Republican. He's a Republican who is running for president as a Democrat. At least with at least with Bernie. Um, he's not a Democrat either, but he's like a He's like Democrat plus. He's like Democrat with extra fuel. Democrat on steroids, Bernie Sanders. You know, maybe that's too much for some Democrats and they, they like to keep the Democratic thing closer to the center near the Republicans and all that stuff. But, you know, at least the basic Democratic values not only are endorsed and supported by Bernie Sanders, he caucuses with the Democrats so they can have his vote and his seat to try to get a majority in the Senate. That's what he's done for all these years, both in the House when he was there and now the Senate. But Bloomberg is a Republican. Bloomberg thinks like a Republican, acts like a Republican, and sort of likes the Trumpian way, the authoritarian, totalitarian thinking that that we hear from Trump constantly. This is just a little different version of that. Maybe a more dangerous version because obviously Bloomberg is smarter than Trump and more sinister and more devious in his desire and ability to use force so that his way happens. So here's Bloomberg now. It's getting near 2009. He's at the end of his two terms, uh, elected in 2001, reelected in uh, 2005. And so now we're coming up to the election in 2009 and Bloomberg announces that he shall not leave the mayor's office. He must have a third term. Well, the law says you can't have one. It's term limited. In fact, remember, I think it's the Republicans who really like this term limited thing because they hated FDR. And after those four terms, which of course turned the country around, got us out of the depression, won World War II, that was just so awful. They had to make sure that never happened again, so the presidency was term limited after that to two terms. So the mayor of New York was two terms, and Bloomberg said, no, I must have a third term to finish my work. And he used the excuse of the Wall Street crash, which he and his buddies were all in cahoots in the, in the making of this collapse in the behavior on Wall Street leading up to when he was on Wall Street and then he's mayor and then he's the mayor of Wall Street allowing all this to take place, it crashes. I don't know you know, how many hundreds of thousands or millions of people across the country lost their homes, lost their savings, pensions were ended. The whole thing that the normal everyday average American had to suffer through because of Bloomberg and his crony friends and then he uses that as the excuse that you must keep me as mayor until we pull out of this crash, 2009. And he gets the city council to suspend the term limit. And, and this is a great headline in the New York Times that says Bloomberg believes in the third term, but just for him. They should go back after him to the two terms. And he got it. He got the law, he got it, he got the rules changed for him. He runs, he gets the third term. All of you who are worried about Trump not wanting to leave at the end of his term, I mean, I've been talking about this since my, this was part of my Broadway one-man show that I did almost three years ago now. 
we all have thought about this, right? That this uh, he may not leave if he loses or if he wins, God forbid. Um, at the end of the second term, he could do what Bloomberg did. He can cite Bloomberg as an example. Hey, the rules said two terms for mayor of New York. Bloomberg got a third. Why can't I get a third? They think alike. There are many ways the same person. They're different people, obviously. Different personalities. Um, different upbringings. But in the basic sort of attitudes toward people of color, attitudes toward women, attitudes toward the police state, attitudes toward wealth and wealthy people, they are peas in a pod. Donald Trump and Michael Bloomberg. Let me play another clip right here. And we'll just play a little guessing game. Uh, tell me if this is Trump talking or Bloomberg talking. This cohort of black and Latino males aged, let's say, 16 to 25 that don't have jobs, don't have any prospects, don't know how to find jobs, don't know uh, that they, what their skill sets are, don't know how to behave in the workplace where but they let, have to work collaboratively. I, me... Yeah, they don't know how to find jobs. That's their problem. They don't know how to behave in the workplace. These brown and black men. Whew. Yeah, that's Bloomberg. Obviously, you could tell by the sound of his voice. He doesn't, doesn't sound like Trump. Maybe that's Brooklyn versus Queens. Although Bernie is Brooklyn. Poor Bernie. Jesus, he's got to like now, he's got to defeat not one whacked, whack-a-doodle billionaire, with Donald Trump. He's got to defeat two of them. He's got to go through, he's got to through, go through whack-a-doodle racist, misogynist, billionaire Michael Bloomberg before he has to go and then defeat racist, misogynist, narcissist. I'm not going to go through it all. I can't take it anymore. Donald Trump. It's a two for a year for Bernie. He's got to bring down not one, but two Republican billionaires. That's okay. He can do it. I've been around. I'm seeing this guy's got more energy. No, none of us can keep up with him. Um, it's gonna, it will happen. And here we are hours before they're going to allow Bloomberg on the debate stage in Nevada. He's not even on the ballot in Nevada. He was too up in his high horsey thing. He was not, not going to go to New Hampshire and Iowa and South Carolina and Nevada. What are the, what are those anyways? They're just these little little states that I wipe my shoes on or something here. No, no, it's, he'll be there for Super Tuesday, though. But they let him on the stage. They're letting him on the stage. I've got so many more things to say about Bloomberg. I'm hoping people will wise up. And, you know, somebody said to me today, who do you think Bloomberg's base is? And I said, scaredy cats. And uh, she said, what do you mean, what do you mean scaredy cats? I said, the only people that are really saying, you know, hey, we got to think about Bloomberg. We got to get behind Bloomberg. They're the people that are so frightened that we're not going to be able to defeat Trump. They, in their minds, have built Trump up into this huge boogeyman, this huge, big monster that, you know, can't be penetrated, can't be stopped. You know, he's got this armor on him that, that, uh, you know, that's Teflon coated and, and they have witnessed Trump get away with everything for three years, including getting the keys to the door of the Oval Office when he lost the election. That's pretty, pretty smart, right? Yeah. Well, um, so they're afraid and they don't think any of the current Democrats that are running are big and bad and bold enough to bring them down, but they think the ninth richest man in the world can bring them down. We've got to put up our billionaire against their billionaire. If I could just go back to 2016, and I want to remind you that um, about all the money, and you're thinking the money is going to save us because we'll have all this money from Bloomberg. Um, Hillary, Hillary Clinton, spent twice as much on the 2016 election than did Donald Trump, the alleged billionaire. That's just the truth. Hillary spent more than Trump. Trump, 
who claimed to have had all that money, well, the networks gave him all the free airtime. So he didn't have to spend so much. Hillary raised more money, spent more money, and lost the Electoral College election. So you need to think about this money thing in the, in the proper context. And to think just because Bloomberg's going to have all this money and that's how he'll beat Trump. If that's all it is, is just money versus money. Trump has been up against this his whole life. And he has made, he has pulverized people with money who think that they could stop Trump from making, from building this development, stop Trump from doing, you know, whatever it is that he was doing or tried to do, or even accomplished doing in New York city or down in Atlantic city. All the different laws that Trump broke, all the labor laws, all this stuff, never spent a night in jail, always had a way out. All his abuse of women, what are the, uh, the total number of, of complaints that have been filed against Trump for rape, for sexual assault, harassment, abuse? Never. Never, never a night in jail. Don't sell him short. <laughs> he will know how to deal with Bloomberg. Don't, if look, if you are part of Bloomberg's base because you're afraid and that's why you really want him, you have no personal connection to him. You've probably never heard his voice until maybe this episode of Rumble. You're thinking that maybe this is our, our great white hope against Trump. I, you, I, I'm telling you, you couldn't be more wrong about this. All the polls continue. There's one, there was one yesterday. They continue to show that the top four or five Democrats in a head-to-head -head against Trump, when they ask a voter if it was Bernie versus Trump, who would you vote for? Bernie wins every time. If it was Buttigieg against Trump, who would you vote for? Buttigieg wins every time. If it was Warren versus Trump, who would you vote for? Warren wins every time. Biden wins every time. Stop being afraid. Trump can and will be defeated if we don't screw it up. When you act out of fear, and you know this, you know this in your daily life, you know this throughout your life. Think of the decisions you've made in your lifetime that were made out of fear. How'd that work out for you? More times than not, you know, not well. But when you've acted because you were decisive, because you decided to maybe take a risk, because you were bold, because you believed in yourself, because you knew right from wrong, and no matter what anybody else said, you were going to do the right thing. When you've acted that way, life has been a little better for you. And yes, sometimes when you take a risk, it doesn't work out. But if you're going to decide to be a non-risk taker, no risks at all throughout your life, I am here to tell you, you're going to have a miserable life because in taking those risks, it, those risks, you will, it will have a payoff for you. You be, will be around the people that you want to be around, the people that love you and you love them. If you're, if you're heading toward Bloomberg's racist, misogynist police state camp, because you're afraid that Trump's going to win again. I wish I could just reach out through whatever into this microphone, whatever device you're listening to me on right now, and just hold your hand for a minute and tell you it's going to be okay. We're going to do this. We're going to do this with whatever one of these Democrats end up with a nomination at the convention. You can say something really good about each of these other candidates, can't you? Even if they don't, even if you don't agree with them politically on everything, or maybe you don't agree with them politically on anything, it's still okay. It's still going to be okay. We're going to crush Trump on November 3rd. 70% of the electorate, I know, here he goes again. 70% of the eligible voters this November are either women, people of color, 
or young adults between the ages of 18 and 35, or a combination of the three. That's 70% of the voters. I just described the base of the Democratic Party. The American people are with us. They agree with us. They agree with our policies. They agree with our platform. The majority of Americans agree with us. Have some faith. Get out of the scaredy cat camp. It's no fun there. So vote for the person who's closest to the to what you agree with or who has given a vision of the country that you'd like to live in. Vote from your heart. Don't vote from fear. Vote from strength. President Obama holds the record for the largest number of Americans voting for any president ever in our history. 69 million Americans voted for Barack Obama. We can do better than that. We can actually do better than that this year. We'll have the first president being elected with over 70 million Americans voting for him or for her. Come on. Now is not the time to throw in the towel and hop on the Bloomberg. (laughs) I don't know what to call (laughs) hop on the Bloomberg Rolls Royce. Think about these things. I'm going to on the, uh, on the description page here for this podcast, I'm going to post a number of links of stories so you can read about the 40 sexual harassment uh, complaints against the Bloomberg company or, or himself. Um, so you can, um, hear these recordings so that you can, um, everything I've told you here factually, I don't want you just to take my word for it. I want you to read about the terror campaign against black and brown citizens in New York city. Something that he vigorously and enthusiastically supported. And the final thing I want to leave you with is something that it's personal in a way that, that he did to, to my hometown of Flint, Michigan. Six weeks after the governor, the Republican governor of Michigan, switched the city of Flint over from the clean water of Lake Huron to the river water of the Flint River in Flint, thus causing the poisoning of the people of Flint, and especially the lead poisoning of children who now are ruined for the rest of their lives because there is no cure for lead poisoning of a young forming brain that of anybody six years old and younger. They are all, they all have brain damage and they will have it for the rest of their lives. Their IQs um, are 10 to 20 points lower than what they should have been. And they're going to have a lot of various issues that they're going to have to deal with because of this poisoning. Six weeks after the poisoning began, Bloomberg brought that governor of Michigan, Rick Snyder, a Republican, to his mansion in New York City. This is in 2014. To hold a fundraiser for him. To raise money so that Snyder could get a second term. Michael Bloomberg raised $2.3 million for Governor Rick Snyder, who at this point has still avoided indictment, but I pray will be behind bars someday soon for what he did to the city of Flint. Bloomberg supported him, supported his administration, um, had him on Bloomberg News. There's a, there's a great shot. I'll put up a, a picture of, of it's, um, it's Bloomberg and Governor Snyder of Michigan uh, Warren Buffett and Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, and they're all yucking it up on this stage together. I'm gonna. I'm also gonna post this picture of a golf outing with Bloomberg, Rudy Giuliani, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump, all of them on the golf course together. Um, folks, it's time we left all this behind, right? And, and let me just tell you just this last thing, too, about what I just told you about the governor who poisoned the city of Flint. If Bloomberg has any chance of making it here, if he goes through as the nominee 
of the Democratic Party. And we lost this election because we lost Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Three states, 77,000 votes. That's it. I can guarantee you right now that if Bloomberg is the nominee, Trump is winning Michigan. Because everybody knows that story of how Bloomberg and Snyder, the poisoner, hand in hand, golf glove in golf glove, the two of them, and Bloomberg, $2.3 million, one of the top contributors of the governor responsible for this destruction in Flint. Do you think Bloomberg, do you think Bloomberg is going to win this? Do you think we're going to get Michigan as, no, it's not going to happen. Don't do this, please. Please, I'm asking you, we're right down the rabbit hole. And that's no place that we need to be right now. Thanks for listening to this. Please consider what I've said. Please do the right thing. Because even though it didn't happen to you, it happened to 5 million black and brown, mostly young men in New York City who did nothing but to be born into their American skin and the skin wasn't white you don't want that in the White House I don't want it there let's get, let's get back to the, the debates that we should be having about policy and uh, who best to lead us into November 3rd thanks for listening and uh, we'll talk soon this has been Rumble with Michael Moore Thank you.